in late May, right after the shooting in Ovalde, I went to see a school play where the, where the child of some friends was performing. There was minimal security. As I sat and tried to focus on the play, I kept thinking about a shooter walking into our midst. I imagined, where would I hide? Where would I hide my daughter, my husband, the children in our midst? Where would I keep my friends safe? What would I do? And I kept trying to focus on the play. So these images, these images that keep happening, these incidents that keep happening again and again, for most of us, they're mediated through a screen, but they're reaching deep. They're penetrating our hearts. I saw an article in the Washington Post this week that said all around the country on July 4th, people were terrified of fireworks, thinking they were gun violence, running to seek cover. You would think that as we are inundated by these images, we'd be inured. Did I say that right? Inured? Inured. But we're, but we're not. Right, we're not, we're scared, right? It's not receding into the distance. It's becoming the regular rhythm of our lives. But then we realize it's even more far reaching than the regularly occurring mass shooting. There are people in this country in the most impoverished neighborhoods that live with gun violence every day, the kind of gun violence that doesn't make the headlines, right? One people, one person shot, two people shot, three people shot, not in the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. And it happens in neighborhoods where mostly brown and black people live. I was reading this morning about a theory called social efficacy or the lack thereof. In these forgotten and abandoned neighborhoods where there are no banks, there are no grocery stores, there is no protection, people need to protect themselves and they end up using guns and turning on each other. It's a way, maybe not an effective way, to respond to abandonment. Maybe this helps explain, this theory helps explain the rise of violence overall in America in the face of the pandemic, the seem seemingly never ending pandemic, the unaddressed climate crisis, the breakdown of civil society and our political institutions, we feel a kind of collective abandonment. What do we do? How can we possibly take action? It's all too much. Where is the healing? Being a rabbi, I look to Torah for healing. I find it sometimes. I don't find it other times. 
But in this Parsha, Parshat Chukat, I find profound lessons of healing. The Parsha includes, sorry, I'm trying to figure out this microphone. Um, the Parsha includes Miriam's death and then a crisis amongst the people because they don't have water. And again, they are in the throes of anxiety and anger. And then God tells Moses to take his staff and speak to the rock. A little confusing, isn't it? I think if we take a step backwards and go to Miriam and Moshe's origins, we'll understand more about their leadership and their leadership styles. Their story starts way back in Exodus 2, a couple of books ago, with the abandonment of a child. Yochebet, Moshe's mother, can no longer hide her infant son, three months old, from the murderous Pharaoh, the one who decreed that all Israelite babies would be thrown into the Nile. She takes her baby and puts him in an ark among the reeds by the Nile. As usual, the Torah is a study in understatement. Nowhere is the reader told of Yochebed's grief and heartbreak at giving up her baby. Instead, the story goes right to Miriam, Moses' older sister. And what does she do? She stations herself at a distance. She stands and watches. Basically, she does nothing. Let's consider two words in that verse that I think are instructive. First, the word for Miriam standing, the te tatsav. So as I said, Miriam does nothing. She watches and waits. She stands and watch over her abandoned and imperiled brother. The Hebrew verb for stand here is an interesting one. The root is yud sadi vav. It's used in another place in Torah, in Deuteronomy, in the parsha called nitzavim. It is used for an entire people meaning to stand in readiness in relationship. Moshe addresses himself to his people in Nitzavim, saying, Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kochem. You are standing here today, all of you, Lifnei Adonai Elohechem, before God. Rashechem, your leaders, Shiftechem, your tribe's leaders, Ziknechem, your elders, Shotrechem, your offices, Call Ish Yisrael. Every one of you is standing here before God, before the covenant. Come to think of it, Miriam is standing in just that way, in readiness, right? In waiting. And the daughter of Pharaoh also stops, right? To find a crying child. As the great spiritual teacher Ram Das said, don't just do something, stand there. Perhaps standing is the very beginning of salvation. Another word to look at in this verse is lidea, for knowledge. It's often translated as to know, 
for her to, or to, to learn what she should do or learn what would happen. But it's actually not a verb, it's a noun. Miriam is standing there awaiting revelation. She's at, own, she's at her own private Sinai, waiting for divine instruction. And revelation comes to Miriam in the form of the entrance of the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of her arch enemy, the Pharaoh who wants to kill her brother onto the scene. And the daughter of Pharaoh stops and has pity on Miriam's little brother. And when Miriam sees that, she walks in and she directly addresses this woman who represents power and privilege and says, shall I call, shall I go and call a nursing woman from the Hebrews for you, that she may nurse the child for you? Solving a problem the daughter of Pharaoh didn't even know she had, which is how to keep this baby alive. And she goes further. Not only does she save the life of her brother, she reunites her brother with her mother. Who does Miriam go to, to call? She calls the mother of the child. And so Miriam reverses the abandonment of her baby brother with radical receptivity, courage, and care. As a result, her baby brother is suckled by his mother and adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. Her baby brother will grow up to be the one who leads the Hebrews out of a state of abandonment and into one of freedom and divine care. And it all starts with stopping. So let's see how this plays out in our Parsha, in Parshat Chukat. As I said, the, the Parsha includes the death of Miriam. Miriam dies and she is buried there. And there's no grieving. There's no attention paid to this death. This is the same leader, Miriam, who when she was sick, I think in Numbers 12, with sarat, with a skin affliction, or maybe leprosy, the whole community waited till she was better for seven days. And now they're not sitting Shiva for her. What's going on? Well, as soon as Miriam dies, there's a water crisis. And the rabbis tell us because it was in the merit of Miriam that the people, the Israelites had water all these years. For 40 years in the wilderness, they had water because of Miriam's well. So Miriam died and the water stopped flowing. And then God gives Moses this mysterious instruction. Take your staff. And gather together the community. You and Aaron, your brother. So take your staff and talk to the rock. In the eyes of all the community. And it will give you its water. And you will take from uh, the rock water, the hishkita and you will um, water or, or give the, the community to drink the etzbi'iram and all their animals. In the past, 
when God tells Moses to take his staff, there is some action that follows. Take your staff, throw it on the ground, it'll become a snake. Take your staff and hover it over the Nile River and it will turn to blood. Take your staff over the Reed Sea and it will split. But here it's take your staff, do nothing with it and talk to the rock. One could understand that Moshe is confused. And to make matters worse, in Exodus 17, he actually, God, not he, not me, it, she, God actually tells Moshe to hit the rock when there is a water crisis. And that was not a problem. And water emerged from the rock. But here, Moshe is really angry. Moshe is sick of his people's complaints. Moshe takes his staff, hits the rock, and hurls insult at his people, saying, Shimuna Hamorim, hear now, you rebels. Hamin Hasela Hazeh from this rock will we get water for you? This is a departure from Moshe's usual stance. Usually God is the angry one. Moshe intervenes. Moshe is the intercessor, calms God's down, God down, and the people sort of, you know survive more or less because of Moshe calming God down. But I think there's something else going here. It's not just that Moshe's angry. The word rebels, Morim, is fascinating because without vowels, and if you remember, the Torah was originally written without vowels, it spells Miriam, Mem, Resh, Yud, Mem. So what Moshe is saying is, listen, Miriam, from this rock, will we get them water? In grief and anger, shall we get water from this rock? We, he's saying we, where, where, who's the we? Perhaps he and Miriam are that we, but Miriam is gone, Moses alone and missing his sister, calling out to her, Miriam, I miss you. Can you give me some water? Can you get us some water? Can you help me calm down these people? I need your help. Can you care for me the way that you did once upon a time? By providing a well of water, caring for those that are abandoned. But now you have abandoned me and I am angry. And with that, he hits the rock. God, on the other hand, is asking Moshe to do something that's almost impossible. To walk in Miriam's footsteps to just stand and speak, not to hit. Looking back at Moshe's origins, his leadership begins with killing a slave master, Vayach, and he hit. Of using his staff for the plagues, the makot, the hits. And now at this moment in the book of Numbers, when he should know better because he is, after all, become a man of words, he regresses in his moment of grief to hitting. God is saying, speak to the rock with strategy and an intent to save. Speak, don't hit. And I would say that this is our takeaway. Just stand there. Stand there in readiness and await for revelation. 
wait for the exact moment, insight, and then move into action, not by violence, but with strategy, with saving language, face your enemy with the efficacy of Miriam. So let's learn how to stand and remember Miriam, remember her, the courage it takes to save one abandoned child, to set in motion the liberation of those who are powerless, those most devalued with devotion for the sake of the transformation of all of us. So let us stand, let us counter the violence of the makot, of guns, of plagues, with Miriam's lesson, with Miriam's faith. Let us stand together to counter abandonment. Ba'atem nitzavim kulchem hayom, and you who stand here today, all of you, you are alive. We are alive, very much alive. We are standing.